opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Reaching Beyond Their Borders session on international programs of U.S. organizations for the blind. I'm Maria Kristich. I'm chair of the American Council of the Blind's International Relations Committee, and this is the first of our 2022 convention sessions. I'm delighted that you have joined us. I'm excited about our panel uh, this morning. This is a topic that we have received questions about, and it's something that we on the committee have also been very curious to uh, learn more about. So I'm pleased to have with us here uh, Mark Reichert from the Overbrook School for the Blind and Katie Holland uh, from the Perkins School for the Blind and Lee Kumutat from the San Francisco Lighthouse. So without further ado, and I'll change the order in which I call on you just to uh, keep things different. <laughs> um, let's, let's, uh, let's start out with talking a bit about the history of your programs and how they came to happen. So you are uh, primarily US-based organizations and how did you come to have programs that also serve international populations? So uh, Mark, let's start with you. How did I know you were going to toss that hot potato to me first? Well, first of all, I really appreciate the invitation to come join you all today. People who know me and have known me for a while know me as a, a nerd, first and foremost. Secondly, a public policy, U.S. domestic public policy nerd. And that's true for just about all my career. That's been a focus of mine. And I'm so pleased that I've now had a bit of a, a shift uh, in my focus to be more you know, broad in scope, to have the have the world be my plaything, uh, so to speak. And it's uh, just fantastic to get to know a whole world of new colleagues. And uh, I started this job as the head of international programs at Overbrook just about a little more than five months ago. So I'm still in that six month honeymoon stage, uh, as it were, which means I've learned a lot. And uh, Lord knows there's a lot more to learn too. What I'm grateful for in that learning process is coming into this work at Overbrook, following in the footsteps of a couple of amazing colleagues, one of whom, whose name I'll drop now, Larry Campbell, worked for Overbrook. Perhaps a number of you know him or certainly know of him. Larry is a, a living legend in our community for sure. And in about the mid to late 1980s, Overbrook started its international program and there were you know, a couple of principal activities that Overbrook was engaged in then, uh, an activity which was essentially a it's multiple skill development, skill area development for young people who would come to the U.S., be in Philadelphia, where Overbrook is headquartered, and acquire a lot of skills, but principal among them, leadership training. And so a number of young people have come out of that program to do some just incredible things around the world. And then Overbrook started to really mature its international presence through some very sort of, you know, intentional, constructive, focused work. So the first region was really in Eastern Europe. And the model that was developed there is really what has informed the way we currently do our work. I don't want to say that we've, you know, stepped away from Eastern Europe, but our focus now is very much in Southeast Asia. And thanks to the just overwhelming generosity of the Nippon Foundation, which uh, endowed us with a, a multi-million dollar grant, which now Overbrook, and I can't take any credit for this, of course, because I'm the new kid, but Overbrook has really grown that endowment to over 6 million now, which is fantastic. 
And what that endowment really does is allow us to partner with an array of organizations, schools and non-governmental organizations in Southeast Asia. And uh, we've got, oh gosh, almost a dozen partner organizations in countries like Thailand, Vietnam, Myanmar, Malaysia, uh, the Philippines, Indonesia, Laos, for sure, Japan. Oh, good grief. Who am I forgetting? As soon as I do a list, I'll forget. But among those organizations with which we've partnered over the course of time, we're really actively in partnership now with about four or five countries worth of groups. And uh, that's what we're doing now. And basically the model then is to using the support that we have from the Nippon Foundation, then to in turn provide direct assistance for purposes of technology and education and ultimately employment opportunity for young people who are blind or visually impaired in Southeast Asia. All right, thank you. And next we'll go to Katie. So thank you for being here. And if you could kindly give some of the history of the Perkins program. Good afternoon, everybody. And thank you so much, Maria, for the introduction. Indeed, um, my name is Catherine Holland. My friends call me Katie, and I hope you all will uh, consider me a friend after today. It's really a pleasure to be with your with you here today. And to talk a little bit about Perkins, which I think probably needs no introduction. Perkins has been around for a while, and I think most of the, the folks in this room know us quite well. You don't know me, perhaps. I joined Perkins about three years ago, moved with my family to Boston from New York City, where I lived for many years. I spent most of my time in the United Nations system at UNICEF. And so coming to Perkins for me was really coming home in many ways to the core mandate of my professional work, which has always been children and particularly marginalized children. So the work that Perkins School for the Blind does on our campus in the U.S. and Massachusetts and and all around the world is really focusing primarily on children with vision impairment and additional disabilities. So very complex kids who are the most likely to be left out of public education and social service systems all around the world in every country without fail. And so looking at how we can do three things. One is how can we support children to learn? That's number one. That's our core mandate is the child from birth to age 22 and how children can have access to quality opportunities to learn and thrive. The second thing we focus on doing is building the capacity of grownups, because we know that children with vision impairment and additional disabilities need grownups with the special skills to help them communicate and learn. And so we know that children are in many different places. We go where the children are and we work with the grownups in those places. So we work in public schools, we work in private schools, we work in special learning settings, and we, learn, we work in inclusive learning settings. We work in orphanages. Uh, we work in eye hospitals and community health clinics. We train principals and we train classroom teachers and moms and dads and medical professionals and all kinds of therapists and community outreach workers to have at least a baseline level of skills and capacity to know how to start communicating with children with complex disabilities and vision impairment, how to do functional vision assessment, how to make sure that kids who in many parts of the world are labeled untestable have grown-ups with the skills to do a vision assessment for a child with complex disabilities and then get that child on the path to learning and thriving. And that's why we know that that path has 
a whole environment around it. So that's why we work not only with supporting children directly to learn, with building the capacity of grownups to help children learn, but we also just work more broadly on the system to make education more accessible to every child. And so around the world, we work with ministries of education, um, ministries of social services, of health, to look at how do we build more inclusive education systems. Most recently, just this past week, my colleague Debbie Gleason, who I'm sure many of you know, uh, was in Thailand in a meeting with the Minister of Education there, signing MOU with the government of Thailand and all 16 of the schools for the blind in the country to make a commitment to improving the quality of education for children with vision impairment and improving vocational opportunities for those kids as well. So really exciting systemic change, I'd like to say, sort of building up in a more accessible future where kids can have more opportunities to learn and thrive. That's what Perkins has been trying to do for almost 200 years now. And I'm very proud and feel very lucky to be part of that journey now. We are currently working in 12 countries in Latin America, in Europe and Eurasia, in East Asia and in South Asia. We are currently also involved with the Africa Forum, which some of you may be familiar with on the African continent. And it's only because of lack of funding that we're not more active in Africa. That's something I've got on my list we need to do better on. And so our main focus is how do we scale up that model that I just described to you? How can we reach more children with access to the kind of quality education that we deliver to students on our campus in Watertown? And how do we build a future where education and learning is accessible to every child? Some of you may be aware that the United Nations has set the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals and SDG 4 within that agenda is indeed education for all. I'm sure all of you join me in this commitment that education for all really must mean all children. That's what wakes me up in the morning every day is to really make sure that all children includes children with vision impairment, includes children with complex disabilities. We're living in a very exciting moment in time where we have technologies like never before. We have the experience and the expertise to know where to start with children who need extra support to learn and thrive. It's really just a matter of doing better at reaching children with this kind of expertise. That's what we're working on at Perkins. I just want to say, I really want to extend an invitation to everyone who um, might be in the Boston area to come visit us. It's been a long kind of isolating two years, I think for all of us. And so I just wanted to, to extend that invitation. If you're in town, I'd love to meet you in person. We, we'd love to, to have you on campus. I think it's time for all of us to kind of reconnect as a community and you know, drink a cup of coffee and talk. So I'm thrilled to be with you here today virtually. Uh, but I wanted to say also uh, just a very warm welcome. If anyone is in the neighborhood of Perkins, you're always welcome with us. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Katie. Wonderful. I think we can all agree on the importance of providing all children with a quality education for sure. So let's go last, but most certainly not least to, as I would call it, more of an organization that is serving a little bit of a different population than uh, our other two. And that is Lee Kumutat from the San Francisco Lighthouse to tell us about the uh, Holman Prize. So Lee, if you'd like to give us some of the, the history of that. Good morning, good afternoon, hello, wherever you are. 
Thank you so much for inviting me to take part in this. I'm really thrilled to be here and it's amazing to hear what Mark and Katie's programs are doing. It's really, really great working and good stuff. So that's absolutely fascinating. So San Francisco Lighthouse for the Blind runs a program called the Holman Prize, among many other programs. And it's unusual, I think, that an organisation whose remit is to serve the people who are local to them, such as the, I think it's 9 million people who live in the San Francisco Bay Area and in also Northern California, so that they are the the people that we mainly serve. And up until very recently, it has been mainly adult services and youth services that we have provided. And so in 2017, and that is well before my time, I joined the organisation in 2020, just before the pandemic that Katie just referenced, I have to say. So I'm totally on board with the let's all get out there and reconnect thing. And actually for me, because I moved from the United Kingdom to take the job um, as Director of Communications at the Lighthouse. It has been very isolating. So I really, really am grateful to hear people say, come visit, have a coffee. In 2017, the Holman Prize began. And it is an international effort, really, by an organisation to challenge the perceptions everywhere of what it means to be blind what it's like to be blind and how blind people and people with low vision are perceived by people who can see or people who don't have, who are blind, who are not blind or have low vision. And so it was an effort to try and do that. And for that reason, it's a program that is led by blind people for blind people. And even though it is designed to challenge perceptions it was really felt that the judging needed to be done by blind people because people who are blind are the ones who know who kind of bear the brunt of some of these negative perceptions that exist blind people don't do anything blind people can't do anything and that's why they don't do anything and so it was really designed to smash those it was also designed to provide opportunities to people who have a great idea, who just don't know how to put that idea into practice or don't, in fact, have the money to do so. And so it's a $25,000 US prize and it does give people that opportunity to really kind of think big and think outside of the square or the box of what they're doing at the moment and think about their big idea. The kind of brunt, like the push for the Holman Prize for the people who apply is, and their challenge really, is to either do something that is individually tough for them, something that they've had their eyes on, a goal that seems far away. And the idea for that is growth, individual growth. So it doesn't necessarily have to be something that I guess benefits people directly or other blind people directly. It can be an individual thing that they decide that they want to do. And it has to have an element of, wow, you know, this person is doing this. This is something that isn't done 
on a usual or daily basis by people who are blind or have low vision. So, for example, just to throw an example out there, and this isn't something that we've had an application for or not that I'm aware of, but say, for example, you are somebody who never has been somebody who exercises, for example, and your goal is to climb Kilimanjaro. That would be considered something whereby you would be challenging yourself. You would have an awful lot to learn about what you are going to be undertaking. And it would also be something that people who are kind of looking in to the community of people who are blind and have low vision can kind of get on board with. And so it has the factor of it's very kind of social media friendly. It's got a great story to it. There's a timeline. There's an achievable goal at the end. Well, it's achievable by some of us. I'm not sure I'd be able to do it. So I think that those are the kinds of things that we see people doing. And of course, the other kinds of things that we see people doing and wanting to do is help others, which is fantastic. So many people come to us with applications. They have these skills. They've been given an opportunity of some kind by somebody and they just want to be able to pass that on or they see a need and they think that they can, whether it be through political contacts or being able to influence thinkers and policymakers, that they want to try and change something. And often it's not just in their own area. We have people living in Western Europe who have seen a need somewhere in Africa and have said, this is what we want to do. This is what I think I can do to contribute to this particular population. And those are very often what we see. And again, what we're looking for, though, is something that challenges you as the leader of that project. So if this is something that you've never done before, this is not something that I haven't set up a radio station in Zimbabwe before. I have set you know, one up somewhere else, but there's going to be a whole lot of other considerations want to set one up in Zimbabwe. And so there has to be some kind of sense of personal growth involved. And that's where the idea really sprung from. I probably answered more questions, Maria, than the first one you asked, but That's all right. I get excited about the whole process. <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> all right. Well, that's, it's wonderful that it sounds like there are so many different directions in which someone can take this. So let's dive into that a bit more. So we've kind of gotten, in some ways, the 30,000 foot view. Uh, so, <laughs> so let's jump into how each of you, uh, for, for your respective programs, uh, more into detail how you identify participants or in Lee's case I guess it would be more of how you are you know marketing this getting the information out there um, so that people know about it and then you know once participants are identified or interested in, in applying or and, and apply what someone from from more of a micro view what can someone in the program expect so uh, let's start uh, let's start with Katie on that one thank you so much so I would say there's the number one way that we begin or continue work with partners in any part of the world is through referrals from this community. 
So somebody knows somebody who, you know, has a conversation and says, you know, I feel like the quality of the schools in the state are not what they should be or what they once were. I wish we could improve them. Who should we talk to? I wish we had support to know what to do first. And then somebody will say, you know, I think we should call Perkins or there will be a government that decides finally they want to actually take concrete steps towards making education more inclusive for real, like not just a child with vision impairment sitting in the same classroom with other kids, but having teachers with actually the capacity to help learners with different learning needs learn. Then somebody will say, I think, you know, you should talk to Perkins. So the number one way that we um, get into contact with opportunities to work with partners in different countries is through the network we're all a part of, these relationships. Now, the need to do work and the resources to do that work are not always one and the same. And so that's where I'm always having conversations and my team is with different foundations, different donors who are interested in building a more inclusive and accessible world. And then I'll say to them, wow, I'm so happy you care about the same things we care about. Can I tell you a little bit about the work Perkins is doing to help learning be more inclusive and more accessible? And then we'll continue that conversation. And in some cases, it's about donor with a general idea and then an interest in a particular part of the world. And then we can match that with a need. It's the magical moment where the local need matches the global resources, which is translates into us being able to do the work that we do. So maybe you just figured out part of why I'm keen to have coffee with anybody. So Lee, you're first on my list. Next time you're in Boston or I'm in San Francisco, I'll let you know. Is part of it is, is just to really spend time and build our community, but also is for us to brainstorm and help me understand, you know, where are the needs out there? Who should I be talking to? Where could Perkins share what we're doing to help improve the uh, experience for children and families and educators around the world. So that's the first way. The second piece of work that Perkins does and the way we get connected with people is many of you may be familiar with our educational leadership program. This is a program we just celebrated 100 years of this program last year. And this is where since 1920, leaders and educators have come from around the world. To date, we've reached 96 countries of folks who've come to our campus and live and learn in a nine-month program exploring and experiencing what we do on our Perkins campus and then bringing it back to their own countries to be leaders and drivers and change. I think one of my favorite stories is an alum from the class of 1956 went home to Lebanon, which was her home country, and got together um, other folks who cared about inclusion and advocated for children who were blind to be able to attend public schools in Lebanon for the very first time. Because back then in the 1950s, blind children were not allowed to attend school. And she left Perkins and what she saw on our campus and advocated for that. And now, of course, today, blind children can indeed attend school in Lebanon. So I think, I, Lee, I love when you're talking about the Holman Prize and recognizing individual achievements, because I think we see again and again that sometimes an individual leader can really make a huge difference in our world. So I'll just say the second way that people can get involved with us, of course, is being a participant in that educational leadership program. Today, it's a 12-month hybrid program. We start with a three-month online learning portion, followed by that nine-month in-person residency on our Perkins campus. I know our CEO, Dave Power, likes to sometimes call it like the Rhodes Scholar 
for um, special education. But I think it's a it's a quite competitive process. It's a very special individual that is also able to dedicate 12 months of their life to studying and then nine months to living in an immersive education experience at Perkins. We are always looking for applicants. Uh, we just now started the class of 2023. They're currently starting their online learning portion, which means we'll be recruiting soon for the class of 2024. So that's the second way I would say, if you know an extraordinary leader who could benefit from intensive leadership and pedagogical training as part of the Perkins Educational Leadership Program, send me that person's name. Um, We're always looking for extraordinary leaders from all around the world who would want to participate in that program. So I hope that answers your question, Maria. Those I would say are the two main ways to interact with our programs. All right. Thank you. Yes, it does. And, and that is a big, we, we get asked, you know, and maybe someone knows something but about them, but it's like, how can, you know, they get involved? And, and so I think that really uh, does help. And it's in some ways, if you have certain, you know, relationships or people, you know, it, it might be easier than you think. So very good. All right. We'll shift to, uh, since you mentioned her a couple of times, why don't we shift to leave next on that one? So again, what can uh, how, how you identify or how you market in your case, I would think the, the Holman Prize and what applicants can expect. So Katie, I'll come to Boston. Okay. Cause I haven't been to Boston yet. Perfect. <laughs> so I would really absolutely love to do that. Just don't come in the winter, Lee. It's really cold here. <laughs> <laughs> the way that we find, um, our applicants, it is a big effort and it's a small team. And, uh, we are a team of three who do this all year round to encourage people to apply. And I guess it's a three-pronged thing. As Katie absolutely so rightly says, it's about how connected we are in the community. And a lot of it is word of mouth and people who have applied and had a good experience, even though they perhaps weren't one of the three finalists um, or winners for that year. So um, that is definitely one way that it that we do. But we also do an awful lot of partner outreach. We publicize it through as many blindness agencies and nonprofits around the world as we can. And the World Blind Union in particular has been fantastic at getting the word out there. And so it's about building the partnerships and and talking to the different agencies and organizations so that they understand what the Holman Prize is about. Because I can send a press release. I mean, how many press releases do we all see each week? And we go, yeah, that sounds really good. And you forward it on to a few people. And that's really great. What we actually need to do is talk to people and explain the philosophy and explain the ambition of what we are trying to achieve, which is what I'm doing here. So thank you again. And then, of course, I I guess the fact that the podcasting world has exploded and there are so many interesting and fascinating podcasts out there done by people who are blind or have low vision talking to that community. And so basically we do the round podcasts because they can be listened to, you know, anywhere that's, you know, in the English speaking kind of world. So those are the three methods through which one method that hasn't yet worked, but we still try every year just to kind of give a bit of an insight into this is we have tried general media and that tends to not work until somebody local 
wins the Holman Prize and then the local media is all over it. And that's fantastic because that then gives us, you know, some sort of forward publicity for the next crop of Holman Prize applicants. Thank you. And we're, uh, it sounds like there are lots of ways now, as you said, based on technology, but again, the people, that, that connection that individuals have in those relationships. So we're, we're happy to uh, play some small part in helping to facilitate that, hopefully. So last but not least, let's go to Mark. Thanks so much. When I last spoke to you, I mentioned that we have been very generously supported by the Nippon Foundation, which is headquartered in Tokyo, Japan. And under the terms of our endowment, our real uh, work is affected through partnerships with the organizations on the ground in specific countries in Southeast Asia. And so, you know, I, th I think what might be best uh, or most interest to you is if I maybe give you at least one illustration of the kind of work that's happening there. And um, I focus a lot when I tell stories about what we're doing on the country of Myanmar, mostly because I think if you know anything about Myanmar, your just your heart goes out to people who have lived, I mean, really for forever, uh, but especially for the last 50, 60 years uh, in just a terrible situation where it's just perpetual political and you know unrest and violence and all the rest of it. A country that has struggled in the last, just in the last 10 years, uh, less than, to try to become a, a thriving democracy. And unfortunately, that's all sort of collapsed. But in that environment, there are a couple of on-the-ground organizations that are just, that we are so privileged in this country and quite literally have no idea what some of our colleagues and other organizations uh, have to labor under in terms of the obstacles that they're facing. I mean, it's all the same issues you can imagine that blind and visually impaired folks need accessible technology. They need affordable technology. There are educational limitations. Go through all of the list of things that we know are issues, lack of people who are qualified professionals to provide educational services. Take all of those issues that you may be familiar with in the States and just multiply it exponentially and then add into that mix political unrest, economic turmoil and the rest. And it's just remarkable what some of our Overbrook partners there in Southeast Asia are doing. Up until about five, six years ago, folks in Myanmar and surrounding areas, particularly those who are Burmese speakers, had absolutely no access to computer technology because, quite frankly, there was no screen reader software to speak voice aloud in their native languages. And so thanks to the work that Overbrook was helped to support by having the back of local folk who do the hard work of the technology and coding and all the rest, uh, now there are many, many more blind and visually impaired young people and others, frankly, who are now able to benefit from screen reader technology that they didn't otherwise have. So in effect, in that neck of the woods, they are experiencing a technology revolution that a lot of us in this country started to see 40 years ago or more. And that's really remarkable. The other little story I'll share with you, because I think this really is like, you know, compellingly illustrates kind of what those folks are, are having to wrestle with there. One of the organizations we're working with in Myanmar is providing direct sort of technology training, uh, use of assistive tech, and frankly, just straight up use of computer technology. As I say, the skill development there and using how to use a computer 
as a blind person is not very, hasn't been around for a very long time because of the lack of technology. So it was in correspondence with a lady who runs one of the programs there in Myanmar. And she was very, very kind. She said, you know, I know you all at Overbrook have supported us in purchasing a number of laptops, et cetera, you know, really high speed rock and roll laptops is Mark Reichert's interpolation of how she put it. And she said, I'm afraid that we had to make a change in the, the, the speed and the power of these laptops. And, uh, and, and she was explaining why she had to do that. And she said, we know that even though the technology we did purchase, the computers we did purchase for our students are, you know, about a couple of years old now, uh, and might not be the fastest computers out there. They certainly are satisfactory for the students in accomplishing what we need to uh, the skills we want to develop in them. But the reason why, Mark, we're, we bought the older technology is because those older computers require less electrical power and the battery capacity on those computers is significantly greater. And she said, that's really important here because here we are only allowed six hours of electricity a day. And when you hear stories like that, it just puts in perspective, frankly. Um, you know, we have our own issues for sure, but clearly the need is tremendous. How can people be involved? You know, uh, here, Maria, I guess I'm going to give a shout out to this international committee, because I think one of the ways that Overbrook certainly tries to stay on the radar in an organizational networking way is to participate actively in an organization I hope everyone knows about called ICEVI, which is essentially the international umbrella group for all organizations of and for people who are blind and visually impaired around the world who are interested in, in uh, special ed related services and the well-being of young people. And so we participate in that. I know the American Council of the Blind uh, has certainly been active in ICEVI. But you know, folks who are interested on in a meeting like today, you can participate in your um, consumer organization and voice your interest at ACB continue to a part in that effort to network with others who are like-minded in other organizations to get your point of view across about, you know, gee whiz, what are the things that we ought to be doing as a global community to better mobilize and organize to address the needs? And I guess the last thing I'll say, Maria, and I will stand down for a minute, is I can honestly tell you, and this is confession time for me, I, I mean, I love what I'm doing. And I have been so parochial in almost 28 years of work focused on the U.S. As we've done different policy work in the technology area, of course, we've learned about and reached out to our friends outside of the U.S. And the U.K. was certainly much farther ahead of us here in the U.S. in terms of user interface accessibility, for example, on video devices, TVs and such, and certainly on audio description. And there are other places around the world where we reached out. But the truth is, a lot of us pointing fingers at myself. I've been very much focused on what's going on here just in my immediate backyard. So if there was one thing that I wanted to conclude by preaching about, it would be to continue to participate in efforts like our International Affairs Committee here and to, frankly, uh, turn to groups like Perkins. I'm very much a uh, in the learning mode myself, but love to chat with you. And it's, frankly, just getting all of us to learn and be open to learning about what our friends and colleagues everywhere are experiencing, because I think that knowledge helps open us all up and broadens our perspective in ways that I can attest from personal experience are surprising and transformative, because I think the more that you learn about stuff that's going on around the world, 
the more motivated you will be to want to help. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. Yes. And it's, it's humbling for sure to know about these different perspectives. And, and again, we're, we're happy uh, with the IRC to be doing our small part. So thank you for that. And you've actually segued us very nicely. Um, I'd love to hear some more um, from all of you in terms of any uh, highlights, any specific particular success stories that you want to share. And if you'd like to um, kind of then segue that into where you see the programs uh, going from here in the future uh, over the next, oh, say, the five or 10 years or so. So, uh, Katie, let's go to you for that one first. Thanks so much, Maria. And Mark, I really want to echo what you just said about us all learning and exchanging together. Again, this has been a bit of an isolating two years. And so I think, you know, the last time, ironically, I bumped into someone from Overbrook was in Ethiopia, <laughs> the West Africa Forum. And it wasn't me. And it wasn't me. Yeah, it wasn't you. <laughs> but I hope they gave you the same great police jacket and hat that your colleague was wearing <laughs> then. But just to say, you know, it is a funny world we're living in where, where Mark, you and I are both right here on the East Coast in the same country. And the last time our organization, at least the last time I interacted with your organization was on a different continent almost three years ago. So yeah, I really want to echo what you're saying. I think the conversation starts here with us and sharing what we're hearing and what we're learning. And often, at least three times a month, an email will come into the General Perkins inbox from somebody in a country that's not the United States saying, I have a niece who is looking for a school for the blind. Can you help? I'm writing from a school and we have students who with CVI and we don't know how to refer them for medical attention. Can you help? Or we have a group of students who actually, Lee, real life example, want to climb Kilimanjaro. And how do we tell that story? And so I, I'm sure all of us are getting emails like this every once in a while. And we could think about turning to each other also for the next step. Or like you said, Maria, oh, I, might, I think I know someone who might be able to help you out. And I believe that this community is pretty good at that, but I, I think we can do better. And I, I, I'm excited to, to talk to you, Mark, for sure, and to talk to all of you and start to explore together how we can do better. For me, Maria, to your question, the next five or 10 years, I'm laser focused on that 2030 UN Sustainable Development Goal deadline. So for me, it's really, what can we do in the next eight years, I guess? The world has committed to those set of goals and as I mentioned, sustainable development goal for education for all. I think it's just absolutely important that the world really mean all when we say all. And I think we're at a moment in time where there's a conversation happening about diversity and equity and inclusion that so often overlooks disability within that conversation. And we all can be part of raising up disability within diversity and equity and inclusion conversations, whether it's about vocational training or education or social services or whatever our specific slice of the pie is. I think that's a conversation all of us can and should be part of, whether it's about domestic policy right here in the U.S. or it's about you know celebrating the accomplishments of a Holman Prize winner. I think in the next eight years, the world has committed to making progress on these sustainable development goals. And right now, we're all talking about how to do that in a way that is more inclusive and more equitable and diverse. 
And so I think it's a, a really important moment for all of us, actually, to be speaking up and being part of that conversation. And, and Mark mentioned ICEVI, which is a fantastic international organization. There are others that are also, you know, advocating and celebrating on broader platforms to make sure that people with blindness and visual impairment are included when we're talking about diversity and equity and inclusion. And, and so I think that's number one, my, my number one focus. Of course, for Perkins, again, the specific lens we come to that on is about children and education and accessibility and quality and, and all of those issues. And, and for me, frankly, also, Maria, um, I think the, the key pivot that I have made in our work since I joined Perkins, you know, it's funny, this COVID time warp thing, you know, it's been three years or has it been 30? You know, sometimes I, I'm not sure Definitely. we can tell, but really has been to shift our work from a project-based approach to really more of a focus on systemic change. So while we are always very committed to the individual children and the individual programs we partner with in countries, really taking a step back and thinking like, what are we learning from this? You know, what's the broader model that's shining through in the work we're doing and how can we learn from that model and talk about scaling it up? That really is the contribution that I, I would like to be making in the next, um, eight years, I, like I say, I've, I've set that 2030 deadline for myself and for our team to really tell the bigger story about possibility, about potential, and about how it just must stop happening that children's potential is not fully realized and not fully explored because of core assumptions about what those children are capable of. I think all of us know a million stories of extraordinary people who have far exceeded what people thought they would be capable of. And that just happens all around the world every day to children who are blind and have visual impairment and particularly children that have additional disabilities as well. And I really hope that what we will see by that 2030 deadline is that we as a world really can say all children and mean it. There's no reason why every child shouldn't have the opportunity and the support they need to explore and realize their full potential. So that's what I hope to do in the next few years. Thank you, Katie. And I love that uplifting some of those words, you know, the potential and the possibility. I think we can all very much agree with that and the importance of, of fostering that for sure, because the, the children are the future, right? So <laughs> <laughs> we've heard um, that somewhere before. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> all right. So uh, Mark, actually, let's let's go to you next. Since oh. uh, I know you shared a bit of uh, that one example. I don't know if you wanted to share um, any others or if you just wanted to jump into the you know, your future uh, goals. <laughs> <laughs> Let's jump into the future. I do have to have a shout out to our friends at Resources for the Blind in the Philippines who did an amazing mathematics for girls competition slash training. And, you know, very cool to see countries investing in young people, and in this case, young girls and young women uh, who in parts of the world, you know, are often simply dismissed because they are girls and young women. And uh, gee, here's an idea. Maybe let's find a way to lift up the STEM work, the STEM education, and in this case, mathematics, and really sort of try to make it fun, uh, bring people together for friendly and creative competition that results in greater knowledge. And if for sure, at its core, to raise awareness of the fact that, you know what, 
We've got a lot of people, young boys and young men, girls and young women who have a lot to offer and are often overlooked in parts of the world. So that's a really kind of an inch. It's been a really exciting thing to learn more about. In terms of the future, Africa has been mentioned several times. I think for sure, Overbrook is interested in trying to take the model that we've been successfully implementing in Southeast Asia and think about other continents in which that kind of an approach can make sense where we can essentially on behalf of a funder who may not necessarily have any expertise in blindness or vision impairment at all, but that has a heart for systems change, for a global impact, uh, and uh, who wants to turn to an organization like Overbrook that has some expertise to share and to channel their generosity and their intention to do good things for the education and economic self-sufficiency and employment opportunity for young folks who are blind and visually impaired and you know, turn that into something real by supporting those organizations who are on the ground there who are the experts, right? I mean, one of the things that certainly I know is important to me is I never want to be in this international context coming out across as though I'm the ultra-privileged white straight male American who has all the answers and I know exactly what these folks need in their countries, right? We don't want to be in that kind of a a position. What we want to be doing is lifting up those who actually do have that firsthand knowledge and supporting what they are trying to do or what, gosh, they would dearly love to do if only there were resources to support them. So that's what we're doing there, which means yours truly is getting a crash course in not only the whole international perspective, but also the philanthropic side of the equation. Because while Overbrook indeed has been around since uh, 1832 and is fairly significantly resourced, resources, number one, you can never have enough of them. And number two, it's all about relationships there as well. So we're in the process now of really amping up our outreach to those potential funders to frankly, raise awareness and to see if their philanthropic goals align with the kinds of things we've been talking about. So lots more to come there. Absolutely. And looking forward to seeing what the future brings and good luck as you do, as you said, cultivate uh, some of those financial relationships. Um, And last but not least, uh, we will go to Lee on highlights and future goals for the Holman Prize. I'm going to jump into the future to coin your phrase again. One of the things that this kind of competition has to start somewhere and it has started, you know, six years ago with a Western lens. And um, there have been and there are some restrictions to what we are to the prize in that at the moment people uh, need who apply need to be English speaking or, you know, who are well versed in English. Doesn't have mean English has to be a first language, but need to be able to speak English. And the other thing is that there is an 18 and older age. So I guess what I would like to see is us broadening that out and being aware that as we do that, our lens needs to shift as well. And I guess I am conscious of that, having grown up in Australia and, and lived in the UK. You know, there are ways that we can do that and echoing a little bit what you were saying Mark, we don't have the resources to do that by that I mean um, we don't have the know-how to do that we are an organization based on the west coast of the US 
And we would love to partner with an international organization that could help us kind of broaden the scope of this so that it isn't just or isn't only a Western-facing program. I feel very, very strongly about that. I think that there is so much opportunity with this within groups that we are just not finding and we are missing out on. One of our um, finalists is uh, sponsored by Waymo in San Francisco, but I just think that we just do not have the brain power. We do not have the resources to be able to do this. And so that is something that I would like to see the prize grow more and more. I have to give you a highlight. So one of this year's Holman Prize winners, his name is Aaron Cannon. He is from the United States, but it it reminded me of what Katie was saying about individual leaders and all of our prize winners can and have been. Aaron springs to mind because he's a very self-deprecating kind of person. He's very quiet. He's Holman Prize objective was to create an accessible online mathematics learning system for people who are blind. Aaron also has a full-time job and Aaron has five children. And I just think someone who has the passion to want to make that change based on an experience that they have had where, you know, wanting to learn mathematics was difficult and he could see that it needn't be as difficult as it was that to me is the kind of I know we're not supposed to use it but I'm so I'm going to put it in air quotes inspiration (laughs) I just think wow and you know same with a gentleman in Nepal and I'm sorry I his name has escaped me at the moment who knew that he had the means and the contacts and in some respects the power but not the money in Nepal to help uh, train 12 blind women in tactile medical breast examination so that they could be employed doing that and his point was because otherwise the only job they can get at this point is massage therapists and Mm. these women have the ability to do so much more and to make such a difference and he's done that and think about there are 12 lives that have been changed but when you multiply that you know, and look at how those 12 lives are going to impact other people. That's when I think really the scope of what we're doing and also what Overbrook and what Perkins is doing is that domino effect. You don't just affect one person, you affect hopefully many. Absolutely. Thank you for that on such inspiring notes. Thank you for sharing those inspirational stories. And on on that, let's go into, on the time we have left, some Q&A. So Tori, do we have some hands? Yes, we do. 217 ending in. Uh, Good morning. This is Ray Campbell calling. I decided to, I'm working, so I'm calling it on the phone. Besides being second vice president of ACB, I also was honored to be the inaugural chair of ACB's special education task force. Are there things that perhaps we could be advocating for to help you guys out through the U.S. government, uh, additional financial support, additional, are there some things that we could be advocating for to help extend the reach of some of these programs? Thank you. Great. Let's- policy side, of course, is near and dear to my heart. 
Very much as I have been saying, I'm the broken record here. I'm in the learning mode. And one of the things I'm learning is while our government, particularly through agencies like USAID, has been clearly transformative around the world, like so many things, I think we can help to focus the work of those agencies a bit more effectively in terms of trying to make sure that their support programs, the work that they do, et cetera, is targeted at priorities that are the most meaningful. And how do we learn what those priorities are? Well, you know, we've name dropped a few of the sort of international bodies that are out there. I'll just pick on ICBI still. Well, I can. Uh, and that is ICBI does its work through a lot of these task force kind of arrangements, committee work focused in a number of special interest areas. The one that I'm starting to participate in is through the so-called Information and Communication Technology or ICT committee. Uh, there are four or five others, I think, that they're, they're trying to begin to mobilize now. And I think, you know, the purpose of that is like anything else, just as it is in this country, where you do everything by coalition, for better or worse, whether you want to or not, there are not only, there's not only is there strength in numbers, but if you're not tied in with the other groups and don't have that seat at the table to make sure that you're speaking up, then uh, what's that expression? If you're not on the, if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu, that kind of thing. That is for sure what we're wanting to do there and to help sort of develop a set of priorities then that can be implemented as we all internationally work in coalition to make things happen. And a big chunk of that, of course, is then finding out who are those folks, those organizations that are well positioned to reach out directly to governments around the world. And uh, that's something that, well, that's not been part of the first five months of my tenure. Uh, I know we're going to be stepping up in significant ways uh, at Overbrook. So short answer to your question, Ray, thanks for pointing that out, because for sure that sort of advocacy and systems change part of things. It isn't just about providing sort of financial or informational support to our friends around the world, but also joining in coalition with them uh, to advocate directly with governments and NGOs to get some cool new stuff done. Maria, this is Katie. Could I oh, add a thought? Would it be yeah, okay? Sure. I want to share something that I've also noticed. You mentioned, Mark, you mentioned USAID, and, and I think it's not just the U.S. government as a donor, but also a lot of U.S. foundations, private sector, yeah. corporate foundations. You hear a lot, if you talk about blindness and you look at who's doing work on blindness or vision impairment, if there's so much focus on eye health and yeah. correctable or preventable mm-hmm. blindness, mm-hmm. right? Cataract surgery and donation of eyeglasses. And we were yeah. at a really nice panel conversation not long ago. Some corporates had made some great gifts. We asked the question towards the end, like, well, this is wonderful. Congratulations on the excellent work. But <laughs> what about the people for whom there is no prevention? There is no correction. I think there's a problem with donors who want to focus on this concept of like fixing. And frankly, there's an awful lot of people that don't need to be fixed and that's not the thing to do. And so we asked, you know, what about, what about the folks for whom a pair of eyeglasses or cataract surgery is not what's needed? What's needed is more, again, access to inclusive education, recognition and access to the same kind of employment opportunities that yeah. other folks would have on a competency basis, not an assumption of what the person is, is competent in. And so I, I really want to say, I think that's a very concrete thing that we can really all do is also advocate and celebrate the work on eye health, celebrate the work on preventable and correctable vision impairment. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. Of course there is, but there's a whole other world out there 
for everybody else for whom those interventions are not frankly what's needed or what is going to be the game changer. You know, there's a lot of what next conversations, I think, especially as medical science is progressing and preterm or early born babies are surviving. And many of them then are presenting with CVI, with other kinds of vision impairment. They're going, the parents are going to need support, early childhood intervention. Folks are going to need the capability and the know-how of how to work with babies with vision impairment. You know, folks who do functional vision assessment are going to need the skills to uh, do a vision assessment on children that have other disabilities or, you know, are, are presenting early age so we can catch some of these things earlier and and make sure that children are learning and developing in environments fit for them, not not fit for other kids. And so I, I just really want to add to what you shared, Mark. I, I think all of us really as a community have to continue to speak up for more donor investment in vision impairment and blindness programs for the for the children and grown-ups who are not going to be a candidates for cataract surgery or a pair of eyeglasses. I, I just I see that over and over again and I think we have we less have than 10 do... minutes left and there are still sure. six hands. Thank well you. the only thing I want to say before we do that is for people who are listening, Maria, I think you know, what you just said, Katie, is really insightful in that, yes, there's a lot to learn about what's going on around the world. And yes, there are some particular ways of approaching uh, solutions and affecting solutions that are very much contextual. The thing that has struck me more than perhaps anything else in the last five months of this new world uh, that I'm in is how similar these sort of macro issues are. I mean, we struggle in this country yes. all the time with trying yes. to figure out this business of don't try to cure us. Can I just chime in very quickly and say, you know, I've talked about publicising the Holman Prize and what I think we really need to do more of, and I say the royal we, and I mean Lighthouse, as well as uh, everybody um, together, is publicise the stories of the people who have finished their Holman Prizes and what they achieved, and they achieved their objectives um, because some of those stories are incredible. And I think that that is something that I would like to see because these are individuals who are changing things for many people who just needed a bit of money. Perhaps they would never have been able to do it, but they just need a bit of money and a bit of guidance. And so their stories are worth telling. So I would like, I would love to see, um, because ACB has done an amazing job at helping us publicise the fact there is a prize. Now, I would love to see a little bit from us all to say these are the stories of the people who went through it and did it and look what they've achieved and what they're going on to do. Thank you. All right, let's see if we can squeeze another question in and I'll let whoever would like to take it. Mark, this is Francine from Overbrook. I'm, I'm an alum and I wanted to welcome you to the staff of Overbrook and to the international program. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you're going to do with our program and how you're going to move it forward. Me too, me too. <laughs> yes. All right, thank you then, Fran. Thank you for that shout out. All right, who is next? Next is Terry. I am calling particularly about issues related to countries in Africa. I will be speaking at a panel to a group of African young leaders, they are brought to this country by, I believe, University of Indiana and the American Printing House is one of the places they visit. When I've done this for several <coughs> years, and whenever I do it, I'm always asked, 
Where can we go for help? How do we get in touch with where can money come from? Where can, and I'm wondering if both particularly Overbrook and Perkins could give some specific ways that such folks could contact them to start the process of getting resources more fully developed in their countries. All right. Uh, Katie, let's go to you first. Terry, you can just have, have them email us. Um, that's the best way. Perkins has a general email inbox. We absolutely do check it and we get those messages. That's the best thing that they can do. And then we can certainly tap our networks and refer them out, you know, depending on what country they're coming from, whether it is to a local resource or to someone in our team who can help them figure out the next step. So I think that's the easiest thing I can tell you is just tell them to go to perkins.org and um, submit an email into the email platform there. And then we'll, we'll get back to them. Thank you. All right. Thank, thank you very much. And Mark? In a friendly uh, family crowd like this, I have no problem giving out an email. And I would love to hear from anybody who uh, would love to reach out with your ideas, questions, uh, interests, et cetera. And especially because if you do that, uh, you're helping me personally, because I mean, just about every interaction I'm having is a learning experience for me. And you can reach me directly at Mark, M-A-R-K dot Reichert, R-I-C-H-E-R-T at O-B-S. Overbrook is one word, but the only way to summarize that is at Overbrook School, right? So Mark dot Reichert at O-B-S dot org. Apparently uh, some, I don't know, Trappist monks or somebody got the O-S-B dot org. URL before us. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, and I tend to tease my information services people that maybe they were trying to switch the letters around to uh, keep out the riffraff or something. But in any case, it is a little confusing, but it's mark.reichard at obs.org. And I'd love to have uh, further conversation with uh, all concerned. Thank you. And for completeness, would you like to give any contact info before we wrap up? Sure. The best way to get in contact with the Lighthouse is through its uh, general email address, which is info, I-N-F-O, at lighthouse-sfsanfrancisco.org. All right. Well, thank you to all of you so much. I know we have more raised hands, and I'm sorry we couldn't get to them, but I would encourage all of you to reach out via those contact methods just shared to hopefully connect with these uh, wonderful and knowledgeable presenters to uh, get your questions answered. So I want to just thank again so much, everyone, for joining. I want to thank uh, all of our presenters, uh, Lee and Mark and Katie. You all have been great to work with. I'd like to thank the rest of my committee for the idea and for assisting with the coordination. I'd like to thank Herbie as well for streaming. Thank you so much again, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your convention. <laughs>